0: Welcome back to episode number two hundred of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and injury handling combustible dust. I'm really excited to have on for the two hundredth episode of the podcast, Paul van Norden. We're talking about differences in incident investigation for dust explosions and comparing those with the incident investigations for gas explosions. Um, as you'll know if you listened to last week's podcast, Paul is a global ATEX expert for Friesland Capina. Uh, he's based in the Netherlands. In the last episode, we talked about becoming an expert in explosion safety and process safety and sort of Paul's journey from you know his initial training up through how he became involved with the company he's working with today, what kind of activities he undertakes. And that was really interesting to get some of the pathway out for some of the listeners that might be interested in pursuing this um, at an international level. Today's podcast we're going to go through some of the sort of lessons learned in instant investigation where I talk about Paul's different approaches to instant investigation and what Paul's learned by using them. Differences between gas explosion investigations and dust explosion investigations. Hopefully, getting some lessons learned as well. So, Paul, welcome back to the podcast, and thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. I'm really excited. So, this is, I guess, officially now going into our fifth year of running the podcast. There are because we're up to episode number 200 for a weekly podcast. So, really excited to have it. I couldn't think of anyone better to have on than than Paul, who's a you know a, really an international expert in this area and having him back on the podcast. We're going to cover the Tripod B approach, which I'll, I'll let Paul explain what that is. We're going to talk about different elements used in investigations of explosion incidents. We're going to talk through differences between gas and dust explosions, and you know what this looks like from applying it, any key insights that we can get from Paul's experience over the last couple of decades in this area. So, Paul, I think the place to jump in, because we had talked about it via email when we were setting up the podcast, was Tripod B, what is that? And then we'll walk through that framework a bit and talk about incident investigation from there. So what, what is this tripod B? It's kind of a strange sounding word. Yeah. <laughs> and where, yeah. where does it come from?
1: Yes. Well, thank you for inviting me for this interview. Tripod B or tripod beta, it's an incident investigation method. Why is it called a tripod? Because it deals with three elements that cause an incident. And the first element is the energy or the danger, and we can compare it with a tiger. The second point is the the target or the object. So, for example, the person in the zoo. And then an incident is the second point of the tripod. And so these three, they come together. And so, if you are familiar with a bow tie, well, in, in, in fact, the tripod beta incident investigation is a collapsed bow tie. Unfortunately, I cannot show you a picture. But you know, between the tiger and the person, there is a cage. And we call this barriers. When does an incident happen? If a barrier fails? So, for example, if the door of the, the cage was left open or uh, maybe if the person climbed into the cage. So in the zoo, you have different barriers, but barriers can fail and that's when uh, incidents happen. And so the tripod B method tries to understand what were the barriers that failed. And then it looks for the immediate cause. uh, For example, the um, guardian of the tiger, I don't know the English word, but the one who cares for the tiger, for example, he left the door open. So that is the immediate course. But then Trapped B also looks a little bit further. What were the error-enhancing circumstances? For example, the person was tired or the keys were lost or whatever. And then uh, Trapped B also looks to the, to the secondary courses or the, the latent failures, as they call it the background courses of an organization. Uh, For example, the the guard or the carer was not trained well. And that's what I like so much from uh, the tripod beamer. It doesn't look only to the direct course, uh, because it's easy to say, oh, stupid man, he shouldn't have left the door of the cage open. But there are always organizational aspects. Why could it happen that he left the door open? And so also with explosion incident investigations, there's always a a why, why, why. I admit that uh, Tripod B is not the only way to investigate uh, incidents. There are many, many more, but Tripod B is just one. And I like it because it goes back to the basic root factors in an organization. What is wrong within the organization that causes that the person uh, makes a mistake? And why the so that that the incident can happen. So always ask deeper questions. Why 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 could that happen?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. That kind of drills into then um, getting beyond those primary causes, those immediate causes, mm-hmm. into those secondary yep. causes, right. into those tertiary. And I think we there's probably one more failure mode of the cage. If the cage doesn't have a top and you don't believe the tiger can jump, then that's like bad design. And it turns out the tiger can jump out of the cage, then, then that's another failure mode. And I think I don't know. We'd have to do an investigation to figure out. We have to pay somebody to do an investigation to figure out where that fits in. <laughs> I think it's down to bad design or non-belief that the tiger can jump. I think there's some probably some important parallels in combustible dust that may fall in there as well. Yeah. So let's let's maybe we'll circle back to that once we get through some of this investigation stuff because that's going to maybe come in with the challenges between gas and dust. You mentioned there are other approaches besides Tripod. Where did Tripod Beta or Tripod B originate from? Is this from an institution or just curious the history behind it? Because I I like that stuff.
1: I don't know the history, to be honest. I know the the UK-based Energy Institute, they teach about the subject. I don't think it comes from Bowtie, but it has similarities with Bowtie. But I like the the Tripod B method because you can go from, from one incident to the other incident. It's often that one thing causes another thing to happen. And so you can have several tripods behind each other. And with each incident, which leads to another incident, you can look to these failed barriers. So it's, it's a, a sequence of tripods behind each other. And I, that's the strength of it.
0: I guess would that be similar to sort of a Swiss cheese model? Then you know when the different failure modes line up to have a worse outcome or a catastrophic outcome.
1: Yeah, and, and normally the picture of the Swiss cheese model uh, it it shows a row of cheeses and there is only one danger or and one object at the end, one incident. But uh, you can imagine that one incident leads to another incident. I, I don't have no example just right at the spot, but
0: yeah. Explosion isolation if you have a deflagration a dust collector and then it propagates back into the uh, mixer, the hammer mill and, exactly. huh. and then uh, the employees weren't wearing fire resistant gear. So you kind of picture how that may result in a, a dangerous circumstance for them having these multiple knock on effects.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah. And I want to get into how this is maybe similar or different than other approaches, but the last kind of note I'll put here is that is the hardest part of the bow tie model as well, is figuring out, in, in my limited experience, had other experts on talking about bow tie, but when mm-hmm. you try to figure out, okay, is this a whole other bow tie that's happening, or is it part of the same bow tie, and then you have bow ties that lead into bow ties, and one's enough to wrap your head around sometimes, but having the multiple and trying to figure out how to isolate them from each other can be can be a challenge. It's it's a really interesting field and in, in application of the the science and understanding that we have that we're trying to apply. You mentioned there are other approaches besides Tripod B. Anything else you missed that it, where they're similar or different approaches that would br- give a different viewpoint for the audience?
1: Yeah, there are different names for it. The basic type of root cause analysis Make make a timeline. What That's part of also the tripod I mean, there are whole books on on types of incident investigation, but I can't say which method is better. It's like, uh, is a hammer or a screwdriver better? (laughs) Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. Exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, for me, it's important that people ask deeper. And uh, in Friesland Campino, we use tripod b sometimes, but we have our own Excel sheets with different pages, which has to be filled in. And that also helps to understand and coming closer to the the basic root cause of the incident. But sometimes it stops there. That's the point I want to make. Always go deeper and try to look to the error enhancing factors and underlying causes in the organization.
0: So try to put this in context. Can you walk us through an example of how you might be using these different approaches as as a global ATEX expert?
1: For example, it, it's not an explosion, but it has to do with explosion equipment. Is for example, we have a spray dryer with a fluid bed under the spray dryer, and we protect the fluid bed with explosion suppression bottles. Excellent stuff, but the danger is for if operators open a manhole that they get exposed to the pressure of, an, uh, of a suppression bottle. So, it has happened with prison Campina that people accidentally or So, why did it happen? Uh, so, operators opened the manhole and because of the light of the torch or some, some air pressure that came inside, that the suppression bottle was fired and they got exposed to, to the huge pressure and the sound of the uh, suppression bottles which of course caused a a big shock for the operator of course then the 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 primary cause is quite easy to understand uh, what happened what was the okay we 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 had a barrier or the barrier was the manhole but the barrier was also a training or the the warnings and, and the warnings on the manhole but still he he opened the manhole and then the question comes, okay, what failed in his training or what caused him to still open the manhole? What were the error-enhancing conditions? For example, was he pushed by the management to open quickly the manhole and he forgot to do a good loto toe, lockout, takeout, tryout? Or was there some miscommunication with the operator and I believe in this accident, there was some miscommunication that he thought that the suppression bottles were lottoed, uh, were switched off, but in fact they were not switched off. So then you go a step deeper. And the next step deeper is, okay, if there was miscommunication between him and the, the, the guy at the control room, why could that happen? Is that normal? That we have miscommunication in our organization, or was it just you know some misunderstanding? Uh, I thought you said, No, you had not said, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you can learn as an organization from that. And We do our best to to have good low-to-toe procedures, and the low to toe is, is going well and 99% of the time, just to figure out of but the one time that the low-to-toe is not done well you can have such an incident. And so to get rid of that one percent, for example, I don't know the exact figure, but to get rid of that small percentage of human failures, that, that is the big challenge, to be honest, in all incidents, not only explosion incidents.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you kind of have seen that. I'm sure you have, but maybe you sort of think about it in a different way than I have. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm influenced a lot by a lot of the guests we've had it on. Dr. Ivan Pupplet, comes to mind in this certain topic. If, if it is miscommunication, you said something really interesting, you know, is, is the miscommunication normal or, or is it not normal? Like something that they thought was the right thing and, and made a mistake or is it just normal that in, in that facility, using a general example, not um, the company you're specifically working with or, or for in this case, but in a, in a given facility, facility A, is it just normal that they don't talk that much or don't have communication? Or is it normal that managerial pressure? And then, kind of digging deeper, well, why is that normal? And I think that's kind of the latent factors maybe that you're talking about is if you're always doing work in a normal condition where there's always managerial pressure, then really digging into okay, well, that means something, <laughs> or if it's normal to to downplay the hazard, and we'll, we'll I think we'll get into the dust side. So that's a great example of walking through some of these different elements of of an investigation of a, a near-miss. So you've done a lot of these for gas explosions and dust explosions. Do you see big differences that arise in the investigation process for dust explosions compared to gas explosions? And kind of a second question is just, you know, has this changed your approach for investigating near misses related to gas, or sorry, near-miss related to dust or incidents related to dust since you've been kind of doing this work? Like I'm really curious, does the same model work or are there things that come in that are different for dust?
1: The model works the same. As soon as an incident happens, the evidence must be kept and not get lost. That, that is such so important. When we did gas in, investigations and we came to the scene where the incident had happened, we always tried to find facts. And the facts finding is the start of a good incident investigation. And with an industry, we have the tendency to quickly go on and to repair the equipment and and to make the stuff running. And by doing that, we can lose our evidence, the facts. For example, um, even the memory inside of uh, the suppression control uh, equipment, uh, this memory is quite short. So we need what what happened a second before the suppression system ignited to, to store that memory and to keep the memory, things like that. But also sensors, not clean, had to keep the, the sensors which were involved in the, in the incident, to keep them as they were at the, at that time. In my experience in, in incident investigation, it's paramount that we leave the site place as it is till the incident investigators are on the spot and find the evidence as it is. So never clean the place after an incident. Just leave it as it is now. And and then as soon as the people have gathered the material of evidence and have taken all the pictures, then they can go on with the analysis. Another thing I I really learned is thinking in, in scenarios, avoiding a tunnel syndrome. I think the biggest mistake in incident investigation is jumping to conclusions. I see that quite often, that when an incident happens at, at the site in a factory, uh, the pe- the local people, that they, they want to have a conclusion as fast as possible. What was the reason the incident happens and they easily jump to conclusions. Of course, the management pushes them to come to a conclusion as soon as possible. But then it can help if someone from a distance can ask uh, different, uh, difficult questions, and to challenge that scenario, because probably or maybe another scenario happened. Always think in scenarios and give room for more than one scenario. Never be content if you you can come up with only one scenario.
0: Yeah, I like that, and I. There's kind of two main areas here that you, you mentioned. One was securing the scene, you know, keeping in the in the state it was as long as possible and until the investigation team gets there, taking care of securing sensors, getting any data that needs to be extracted off equipment while that's still available. Any sort of the evidence material collection, that all should be done by the folks that are doing the investigation so that they know where and when and how that stuff was collected, where it's collected and how it was collected. So that's sort of one piece. And then the second piece, when you get into the investigation side is doing everything you can to avoid confirmation bias because you're going to do it. <laughs> if you say, yep, this is it, then you're only going to see the things that confirm that you're correct and you're going to get that tunnel vision. So having those other scenarios come in, uh, multiple hypothesis, testing them all out. I think that's where having an external individual an external could be a, you know an expert from, from inside the company coming in helping. Having somebody who's not on site every day come in and do the investigation, whether or not that's an external contractor or external consultant or an internal um, expert like yourself, having them come in because they can sort of circumvent some of the managerial pressures. Again, we mentioned already that managerial pressure might be normal <laughs> activity. So if it was, then it's going to be also present during during the incident investigation. So those are two key areas. I, I've kind of thought of two more here that I wanted to pull out from these lessons learned I'm trying to figure out which one to go let's do inter- so it's, it's near misses and in interviews but on interviews side does the same thing kind of happen with the, the employees like when you want to understand where people were and what they experienced is it the same thing where you got to avoid you know evidence getting deleted or people talking to each other so stories start shifting and changing do you find that with your, your experience
1: I was just thinking about the aspect of interviews because that is so important you know, but sometimes interviews are not possible because the persons are hurt so much that, that they go to hospital and then they stay at home. You as incident investigator have no access to these guys. So the victims, in fact, they should ask the critical questions. And I know we cannot train for that. But as soon as the person has left to the hospital, getting access to them is, is, is quite difficult sometimes. As soon as the story is in, the, in their head, it's hard to challenge the story. Did you really do this? Was this really what happened? Um, and so we have had some incidents in Friesland campina that we never got the clue on it, what, what happened exactly, because we were too late in, uh, in talking with the victims and with other witnesses. But that is indeed very important, to, to get their story as soon as possible.
0: Yeah. I think it's the same as a law investigation and they have their own challenges. Um, actually the challenges are the exact same. It's just, it's a communication challenge. So you know, if you have people talking to each other, then the stories start to merge to one groupthink story. The other thing is the investigator. When I think of law, I think of misapplied pressure and tactics. You as an investigator trying to figure out the, the real story so you can generate lessons learned and improve the safety in the future, you have to avoid influencing the outcome. <laughs> so if you ask them in a really aggressive way or you ask them to even to passive way, or some you know, the, the questions are wrong, you, you can actually influence the outcome of that. And even calling an interview is probably not like the, the best, <laughs> it might put them on edge just doing that, but I don't know what the, what the word is. So there's probably some techniques and things to be learned about how to do that information gathering from witnesses, from survivors and and those that may have observed what happened. The second piece I think is really interesting here is is the, the case of near mm-hmm. misses. And because we talk about, well, you got to secure the scene, you know, don't move stuff at what point do people know comes in? Like, is it, you know, a deflagration happened or an upset or, and, and I asked for two reasons. One, one, cause it's really important for the instant investigation, you know, figure out when things should be investigated and, and how to handle near misses or if they're handled at all. And two, we see time and time again, where an activity like a fire in a mill gets dealt with. They clean out the the mm-hmm. hammer mill, say and you fire up the equipment. And as soon as the pneumatic dispersion turns on, then you have a deflagration mm-hmm. throughout the ducting. Um, Or you have a dryer that had a fire and you stop the process, and the stuff melts on the fins in the dryer and creates some off gases. And when you turn that system back on, now you've oxygenated and you have deflagration to close the dryer. So, and whether or not you call those near misses or incidents, I think that's the conversation we're about to try to have. But it's like there's a real challenge that if you don't secure the scene and don't investigate, that you may trigger an escalation that could be more devastating than the first thing. So it's really important to figure out when are we at non-normal conditions or near misses or had an incident and when should we start the investigation Mm -hmm. process? So that's the background. I guess the question for you is any insights on this difference between near misses and incidents and how we might classify those in terms of of doing the investigations?
1: Yeah. First of all, it starts with awareness that uh, near misses are are very serious. (laughs) You you know, especially with near misses, there is a tendency, uh, oh, we were lucky, so let's go on (laughs) with the work. We have work to do. The the safety and health departments are often so busy. To find time to do a good uh, near miss investigation uh, costs time, you know. But I I really want to challenge people to listen, to take time for near miss investigations, to learn from that because you really can prevent a, a real disaster by, by learning from near misses. You know, the tendency to just go on and not to take time for good uh, root cause analysis, that's a danger. And it should be in the culture of the organization to learn from their near misses. But in effect, you know, the, the approach is more or less the same uh, with incident investigation. But with a near miss, a barrier did not fail, uh, otherwise the incident should have happened, but uh, it almost failed or the danger was almost created. But still, it's, uh, if you look to the iceberg uh, theory, you know a lot of near misses uh, will cause a serious incident. And so we, we should learn from it.
0: It's really important to foster that communication within your company. So that you're all in agreement. (laughs) I don't care what level you set it at. If it's somebody gets injured or um, you have a process update or there was one barrier that didn't fail or you had a deflagration, nobody was in the room. I mean, what barrier failed there? Well, what barrier didn't fail there? Well, None. It just got lucky.
1: In our company, we we have what we call dare to share. We have an open culture. When there happens an incident, uh, we dare to share about it. A one pager is made and it is circulated through the community uh, in our company. So w- we try to learn from our incidents. Dare to share is one method for doing that. And sometimes we communicate a near miss. Uh, so you can also make dare to shares about near misses. And I think then even you learn much more as a company.
0: Yeah, we've seen a couple of those done certainly within companies and then even manufacturing advisory council and BC 4 safety council in, in British Columbia, where they're sort of bringing these, these one page safety shares up and releasing to the entire industry. And we've had a couple of podcast episodes covering those different safety shares as well. They're, they're so tremendously valuable. So really interesting. We talked through some of these considerations then for the incident, you know, after the incident, doing the investigation, I think kind of closing off this episode Any other key insights that you've learned from your your many years now investigating these type of incidents that you'd like to share with the audience today before we close out?
1: I think I I mentioned many things, but never point directly to the operator as an immediate cause. Yes, someone made the immediate cause to the incident, but there is always a reason behind it. And often uh, we pinpoint to operators, oh, stupid guy, he should not have done it. But there is always a cause behind. And that cause is caused by the organization or even by the management. And we should have the guts to search deeper. So I want to encourage my, uh, your public to do so.
0: And I'll kind of even add to that. It's so important to do that. And, you you know, you you've had the you the classic operator that was a, a stupid thing to do. One that I've I've seen that is the same trap. It just happens at a later level is, you know, owner, they were just a really bad person. They, sh- or they did know and they just didn't do anything place. And what I, the, the case example I always use there is, you know, my, my son, he's, he's four now and my, my daughter's a year and a half. There might be like a toy sitting at the top of the stairs, you know, beside my office here for a recording. And I, I look at that toy and go, really, I got I to really pick that up. And, and I just forget that one time. And then the next time I'm like, oh, I should pick that toy up. You know, somebody's going to slip and fall. And then three weeks later, I look and go, "How is that toy?" Like it, I've totally blocked it from my mind. I don't even see the thing anymore. Technically, that's normalization of risk. You know, a hazard didn't manifest itself as an incident. So because of that, I just my my brain naturally blocks that out. But that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. <laughs> it just <laughs> means I forgot to clean up the toy. And the same thing's going to happen with operators. And you say that stupid, operator, or even facility owners. And what normally happens there is they just say the owner doesn't care about human life or, you know, is, is a bad person.
1: It reminds me of an incident we had once. In, indeed, if you accept things what could potentially lead to an incident, in the beginning, maybe you are aware of it. But when we do not do anything against it, it becomes normal. And nobody will say anything more about this because it's it's not a deviation. No, it's part of the, the, the process. It's normal and nothing happens with it. But a, a small deviation can always deviate a little bit more and becomes the cause of an incident. And maybe connected to that, that's why we need audits because an auditor, he looks with fresh eyes and he sees things which people in the factory don't see anymore. So I really want to stress the importance of audits and fresh eyes and have the guts to to do peer reviews in, in your own factories and uh, ask people to come and look how you do it and if they see things which are not normal for them but have become normal in, in, in your factory. Just one small example. I, I, I was once at a factory where they used LPG, I think, or... And gas and gas was uh, transported by trucks and but so the gas truck came and the gas was put in the system of the factory and there was an earthing cable the, the earthing cable you know the clamp it was rusted and the rusting had not happened uh, just that night when i was there as an auditor it must have been existed for many years or many weeks and nobody had observed it and probably at It had become the normal practice that this clamp was rusted. So the truck with the gas was not earth well anymore, but nobody knew it. So always we must be careful about this kind of deviations. But sometimes you don't see it anymore because it has become too too normal. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that comes back to that culture
0: piece like you were mentioning. If you have a culture of... Peer review or external, like I think of the, the toy on the staircase. Well, if I had somebody come in every week and, and audit my host for for random safety violations, then they'd probably, they would clean up that like they move the toy, right? Because <laughs> they wouldn't be normalized to that risk. Same as if I had a culture in my home of reporting near misses, where my my son or my my daughter, or whoever, um, marks down, oh, there's a toy on the stair. That's a that could have been a bad one. We'd probably get things cleaned up better as well. So there's some keys that lie into. The tools, And then you need to have the culture in place to be able to manifest those to, to have them happen.
1: And, and let me stress uh, that, you know, incidents may give the impression that everything is wrong in an organization, but it's, it's the, the way around, of course. I mean, many, many, many things are good in, in our company and in many other companies. Right? But it's just a little thing which we don't observe anymore that can cause an incident.
0: Yeah, like the rustic clamp cable, right? That's an example. That's such a minute thing, you wouldn't even notice it.
1: No, because many other things were were perfectly organized in that same plant, you know? We must learn from (laughs) that. Yes, well, we
0: will. That's why we have the podcast. So I I do want to thank you again, Paul, for coming on, sharing your experience. We do hopefully have another interview uh, in the future talking about some more of your specific experience. I think that one we may be talking about. Well, well, we'll save for that episode. But I do appreciate coming on for this episode, talking about instant investigation, some of the tools that are out there and really leaning on some of your experience. So I appreciate you coming on. More importantly, I, I sincerely appreciate the work that you do in industry within Rising Capina and even before then with the work that you're doing as well. So keep it up and, and we appreciate it. Thank you. And yes, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Paul. My pleasure. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Paul von Norden in this is episode 200 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. So we're just tipping over into our fifth year running the podcast weekly. I love it because I get to talk with really interesting, really smart individuals like Paul on the podcast, talking about really important topics. In this case, we were talking about instant investigation, for dust explosions, comparing that to gas explosions and some of the lessons learned there. So we, we talked through this Tripod Beta, Tripod B, which is one of the many different possible incident investigation models and this one in particular there's three elements that's where the tripod comes in there's the danger the target and the incident and we use the case of a lion in a cage the lion is the danger the human is the target that's outside the cage hopefully um, and the incident is okay what happened that introduced the, the target and the danger and then you get into the barriers so you know the cage would be a barrier the roof would be a barrier what actually failed? What was there's immediate cause of that failure door left unlocked, no roof on the box, whatever it's going to be. Then looking at the error enhancing circumstances then looking at the the latent failures as well as the secondary causes to understand sort of digging deeper and paul mentioned a couple of times you know why 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 do the five whys get to a root cause and then do the five whys again it's really good to get to the root cause and try to dig even deeper into that and say okay well what is the the underlying learnings here what common root causes may cause other types of incidents happen there's a lot of learning that can happen there we talked about how this compares to other type of models and we didn't go through the molders Plenty of textbooks on this stuff. We talked about Swiss cheese a bit. We talked about bowtie analysis. We talked about iceberg theory. I'm not sure what the name of that one is, but you can, you can guess 90% of the icebergs underwater. So we talked about how that applies to other areas as well. We talked about some specific examples for incident investigation. We talked about some of the things that really come into play for both gas and dust explosions. So once an incident happens, you want to make sure that you're securing the scene appropriately, taking care of the evidence making sure that we're collecting all the data that we can, make sure we're doing that in a way that the investigators know where it came from, know what was in what place at what time. So we talked around that during the instant investigation, Paul talked a lot about testing multiple hypotheses, testing multiple scenarios, not developing this tunnel vision, avoiding confirmation bias and really getting to what actually happened. And that's not going to happen. if You just go with your first guess and then, you know, everything you look at is going to confirm that we talked about interviews and, and handling the discussion with, victims and survivors and observers and how some challenges that can arise there. We talked about near misses and where you set your level set for near misses can drastically influence your learnings. It can also drastically influence your incidents. It turns out um, because a lot of cases those near misses can escalate. And we see that a lot in the incident database where a, a fire has escalated either from not being recognized, either from being forced to escalate through some physical mechanism caused by a human or a machine Um, or the recovery. So we had a fire, we cleaned it up, we didn't quite get everything um, set up the way we needed. And when we went to restart that system, we have an explosion. So having your level set below the case where these near misses that can escalate occur is really important. And it's important because we get to to get to the bottom of those near misses and have more learnings as well. We sort of closed out talking about some of the difference between dust and gas explosions. We never did circle back to this topic of not having a top on the box and not believing that the lion can jump out of the box. I, I think that's a shame. And maybe we'll talk about it in the future because that's a, that's something that happens with combustible dust where you, you either don't know the hazard is there. So that's a, that's an awareness issue or you're sort of aware, but you don't believe it. That's a normalization of risk issue. These may come to fruition of you designing the cage that has no lid on it because you don't think the tower can jump and the thing jumps out. In case the barrier is, is slightly different. It was maybe never in place at all or, the design was bad. There's all kinds of things that can come up there. I think some of those are the things that we see happening in dust. with us. That'd be an interesting discussion for the future. And then we closed off talking about, you know, other challenges around other key insights and lessons learned. We talked about culture. We talked about understanding, not blaming individuals, either operators for making mistakes or having errors, not blaming owners for being bad people. Um, these are all bad root causes. <laughs> if you find that's your root cause, then, uh, then you haven't dug far enough, so keep digging. So I appreciate, as always, you listening to the Dust Safety Science podcast. I appreciate you staying with us now for 200 episodes. I don't even know how many hours of material that is, but it's <laughs> too much for me to calculate on the spot. I do appreciate everything you're doing and spreading the word of the podcast, all the emails, the information we receive. all um, well, the show notes for this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 200. That's two zero zero. you want to reach me, you can reach me at chris at dustsafetyscience.com. We'll have Paul's contact information on the show notes for this episode and last week's episode as well. So as always, thank you and have a great week ahead.